You know, there's a, a, a famous saying that there's a first time for everything, right? A first time for everything. You know, this week, uh, our kids had the first day of school, okay? And I, I'm sure many of you can remember the very first day of school you had when you were a kid. And so first day of school, um, I remember the first time I drove with a license. I don't remember the first time I drove without a license because there were many of those times on the farm. Um you know, what's interesting is about a year ago, I had my first time ever preaching here at Trinity. Did you all remember that? That was in, I think, August, early August last year was the first time I ever preached in this church. And so, yeah, well, I'm glad you're still uh, still glad that I'm here. That's that's good to hear. Uh, we won't, whatever the people online are saying in their living rooms, we just, we can't hear it. So we'll just, you know, we'll go with it. Um you know, I remember my first crawfish boil. It actually wasn't here in Louisiana. I have some friends from this area who moved to Birmingham, and we had our first crawfish boil there. And that was an experience that I'm now addicted to. Unfortunately, we had to miss that season right with COVID. How about this? The first time living through a pandemic. Is everybody, is this your first time living through a pandemic? I think everyone in here uh, could, could say that. Uh, but here's another one this morning. Uh, I, this week, as I was preparing to preach about everyone I could think of, if I had a conversation during the week, I asked them, have you ever studied or have you ever heard a sermon on the book of Zephaniah? And without fail, I think everyone said, nope, never done that. In fact, if you turn in your Bible to Zephaniah, there's a good chance if you can find it, uh, that the pages, this is the section of our Bible, the minor prophets, where the pages are sometimes still stuck together because you may have never opened them before. Okay. So Zephaniah, this might be your first time that you've ever heard a message on the book of Zephaniah. And for me, it's a first time I have never preached a message on the book of Zephaniah. And so, um, it's definitely a first. But here's another first. I'm going to put a question up on the screen. And I wonder if this is the first time you've ever asked this question. Or you may not even be asking this question right now. It's probably for sure the first time you've heard a preacher ask this question. Um, but here's the question. Does God have a multiple personality disorder? Have you ever heard a preacher ask that question? In fact, you're probably thinking, what in the world? It's blasphemy that Marcus would even put something like that up on the screen or say those words out loud. You've never asked that. Well, maybe that's good that you've never asked that. But I, but I would just say, um, I just did. And there's a first time for everything. And so really, does it ever seem to you, especially here in the minor prophets, that sometimes it seems like God has a split personality? You know, on the one hand, he can be uh, week after week. We've seen this. He's announcing judgment is going to fall. These people are all going to nations are going to be wiped away. Uh, and then almost in the next verse, he's saying, I offer forgiveness and restoration and cleansing and a relationship. And you say, how can both of those things be true? How on the one hand can he be full of judgment and on the other hand, be full of love and faithfulness? Does God have a multiple personality disorder? And you might say, no, of course not. I would, I would never say that. God does not have a multiple personality. I would never even ask that. But you know, how about this? I think sometimes Christians, sometimes churches, um, never say that God has a split personality. But if you look at the way that we study scripture, we kind of act like God has a split personality. 
And, and you see this, what do I mean? I'll, I'll speak for myself, okay? I went to Moody Bible Institute, which is a really solid Bible college, at least it was at the time. I think it still is in Chicago. And I got through all of my time at Moody, and I thought, I think I'm ready to go become a pastor. And then suddenly it struck me that even as good as Moody was, I didn't know anything about the Old Testament or very little about it. We spent the vast majority of our time looking at the New Testament, which is wonderful. But guess what? Two-thirds of Holy Scripture is the Old Testament. And so, you know, I'm speaking for myself, but I would ask you that. How much do you time do you spend in the New Testament versus the Old Testament? And why is that important? Because I, I think it is this. There's kind of an unwritten belief. Christians kind of believe this. What I have up on the screen, this idea that God has some kind of a split personality. In other words, in the Old Testament, that's the God of wrath and justice and judgment. That's a different God. And in the New Testament, we have the God of love and grace and forgiveness. And so even though we would never say he has a split personality, I think just by the way we study scripture, we kind of reveal that we sort of feel that way. Does God have a split personality? Well, I think Zephaniah... And all the minor prophets actually help us to answer this question. Um, and really, I think we see two things here in the book of Zephaniah. And if you look at your bulletin, uh, if you're online watching, you can pull up the bulletin on our website. But there's really two things that Zephaniah has us focus on uh, that we can see here. And the first one is God's passionate judgment. That's what we're talking about. That's one side of God's nature. Um, and then we also see God's passionate restoration that he offers. And so we see this in Zephaniah. We've seen it a couple times throughout the minor prophets. And uh, we want to look at this today to show because I, I, would, I would contend with you that God does not have multiple personalities. Okay. Uh, some people would even say, you know, in the Trinity, God the Father, he's the mean one. God the Son, he's the nice one. He came to die for our sins. That's not true. That's blasphemy. Okay, we have one God, uh, and he is consistent in his nature. And so Zephaniah helps us to see that. I think it helps us to answer this question this morning. When we talk about God's passionate justice, God's passionate judgment, God's passionate restoration, what do I mean when I say passionate? I mean, I think in this book, there's a certain intensity that some other books don't convey quite as strongly. In other words, we've been reading about, we've been studying this summer about God's judgment, about his faithful, loyal love for his people. But when we get to the book of Zephaniah, it's the ninth book out of 12 in the Minor Prophets. There's a certain intensity. It's like he ramps it up another notch that's a little bit different than some of the other books. It's another short book, just three chapters, but it's really intense. And so I think it's accurate. It is accurate to say that we see God's passionate judgment. But also, thank the Lord, his passionate restoration. You know, his judgment and his restoration here is not just an afterthought or something that he makes up as he goes along or something methodical and mechanical. This is deeply rooted in his character. He feels deeply about it. And it's passionate. The Lord passionately delivers judgment on the entire earth. And as we see towards the end of the book, he also passionately offers restoration to anyone who will trust in him. So that's what we want to look at this morning. But first of all, we're going to look, uh, as I said, at the passionate judgment. And if you just look at the very first uh, verse in the book, chapter 1, verse 1 of Zephaniah, hopefully you found it. It's there uh, a little bit before you get to the New Testament. We're actually getting close to the end of the Old Testament. It's, it's at the very, big, very end, right before we get to the, to the New Testament. 
Zephaniah 1.1 says this. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, and the days of Josiah, king of Judah. And you might say, well, who are all those people? Why is it important for him to list off that whole list of people? Um, well, just so you know, it says his great-great-grandfather there was Hezekiah, who was one of the greatest kings that Judah had, the great king Hezekiah. And so it's making a point here that this is one of, he's actually related to the king Josiah. He's cousins once removed with king Josiah. And so for, for Zephaniah to come on the scene here and announce this terrible, passionate judgment would have really caught his family members by surprise because he's condemning his own people. And so I think it would have been uh, extra powerful coming from a member, if you will, of the royal family of Hezekiah's great-great-grandson. So what we want to look at this morning, though, is we look at this passionate judgment. And we just want to dwell briefly on this and then move on to the passionate restoration. Is, is First of all, is that what we notice when we read this book is that the judgment that God brings in Zephaniah, in scope, it is total judgment. Total judgment. And just listen to the way he says this. This is stronger than it's said in a lot of the other minor prophets. In fact, a lot of these words you could describe as apocalyptic. Uh, that's a word we like to throw around in English. Apocalyptic means they resemble things that you would read about in Revelation at the end of the Bible. Okay, so uh, listen to these verses. Chapter 1, verse 2. It says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And we could stop right there and say, wow, that's... That's pretty bleak. Verse 3, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the Lord, declares the Lord. Face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along, along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet also swear by Malcolm, Milcom. So the scope of this judgment is total. In fact, if you look at those words, when he says, I'm going to sweep it away, I'm going to cut it off from the face of the earth. You might notice those are actually very similar words to what are used in uh, Genesis when God brings the flood uh, when uh, during the time of Noah, he says, I'm going to wipe away mankind from the face of the earth. In fact, there's a lot of echoes of Genesis right here in these first couple of verses. God says things have gotten so bad that eventually I'm going to sweep it all away and wipe it out. In fact, reading through those verses, verses three and four, it's almost like reading the account of creation in reverse. God is uncreating what he created. As a means of punishment, man and beast, birds of the air, fish of the sea, cut off mankind. These are the things that God created. And even his most prized creation, mankind, he's going to wipe off the face of the earth. This judgment is total. Uh, which verse is this? Verse seven, be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. This is a topic that's come up over and over again in the Minor Prophets, this idea of the day of the Lord. It's a special day, but not special as in fun or good, uh, like a birthday party. Uh, it's a terrible day. 
And so when the prophets talk about the day of the Lord, this is what they're talking about. This total destruction that God promises to bring on a sinful earth. Like, wow, that's, Marcus, that's, that's heavy. Verse 2 says it will be all nations. In fact, chapter 2 really, so chapter 1 talks about God's people being judged. Chapter 2 talks about all the nations being judged. And then if you come back to chapter 3, again it comes back to uh, verses 1 and 2. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. God's now talking about Jerusalem and his own people again. In fact, it's really interesting the way Zephaniah describes this. He says, God's people, you actually resemble these sinful nations more than you resemble the God who's called you. And so as a result, God's going to treat you just like those sinful nations. It's a warning. Okay. So we see the total scope in that it includes all the nations. It's uncreating the creation. And then there's one other thing that Zephaniah does that I want to point out to you that just shows again his picture of total judgment that's coming. He kind of throws out the four points of the compass, north, east, south, and west. And he says, Every single one of those is going to be destroyed. And how do we see this? Uh, the first one, chapter 2, verse 4, it talks about Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon. And it lists off all these cities of the Philistines. You remember the Philistines? Uh, they were the bad guys of the Old Testament uh, before the Assyrians came along. Uh, Goliath was a Philistine. They lived to the west of Israel. And God says they're all going to be wiped out for their sinfulness. Next, he says Moab and Ammon. That's in chapter 2, verse 8. These are the countries on the on the east side of Israel. And he says, because of their sinfulness, they're going to be wiped out. Next, he says in chapter 2, verse 12, Cush, the Cushites, will be wiped out. That's a nation that was in Egypt, south of Egypt, modern-day Sudan or Ethiopia. And uh, God says, because of their sinfulness, they're going to be wiped out. And then lastly, we've talked about the Assyrians uh, with the book uh, of Nahum. Um, this idea of the city of Nineveh, it says in chapter 2, verse 13, because of the sinfulness of Assyria, they will be wiped out. So north, east, south, and west, God says the destruction I bring on all the nations of the earth, including Israel, is going to be total and complete. Final. Chapter 1, verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 8. This is the last verse in the section of judgment. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation. All my burning anger from the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So what we see here is passionate judgment. And its scope is total. All right? So... That's nothing new. We've actually heard this in other prophets, right? That God is bringing great and terrible judgment. Zephaniah ramps it up and says it's all going to be burned away from the face of the earth. The earth is going to be wiped clean. So this judgment, just to dive one more step deeper in there, I think the second thing we see is that God wants to leave no doubt that the character of this judgment is that it's just. In other words, it's deserved. On sinful people, God uh, brings justice. And so chapter, just to see what it is that they did to deserve it, those first verses I read at the beginning, we know they were worshiping idols, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heavens. 
It's interesting. Zephaniah says these are God's people. And they're bowing down to the stars that God created. I heard a speaker one time say that idolatry or this idea of worshiping nature, the sun and the stars, it's like falling in love with the engagement ring and not with the one you're engaged to. And that's what these people are doing. And God says, you've turned your back on the one who loves you, the one who creates you, and you're worshiping other things now. Idols. Nature. What else? Verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. In other words, they've rejected Him. These are God's people and they've openly said, we don't need Him. I reject Him. I reject His Word. I reject His prophets. And God says... For this reason, I bring judgment. Chapter 1, verse 9. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. So there's violence, there's cheating, a dishonest society. So again, there's a laundry list of reasons why God says you are sinful and there's and I'm just to bring this punishment upon you. And here's the thing. We can sit here in 2020 and look back at Zephaniah and say, wow, look at that. They're worshiping idols. Can you believe it? They're uh, bowing down to the stars. Yeah, God should bring judgment on them. Well, brothers and sisters, as humans, we are just as flawed as those ancient people. Because we bow down to other things. It may not be idols of wood and silver and gold. Uh, but we bow down to things like money. Fame, image, possessions, you name it, power. We give anything to get those things. In other words, we worship them. We give the best that we have. And so God says it doesn't matter whether you live in 2020 or if you live in Zephaniah's time. All are deserving of God's judgment. All who have sinned. Romans 3.23 This is New Testament. Again, the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And until you realize that you have sinned and you have fallen short, I have sinned, I have fallen short, you don't understand that you need God's help. You need his restoration. You need what he alone can give. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So passionate judgment. God is just to bring this judgment on anyone who sins. But that brings us to the third point about this judgment. Is that its goal is redemptive. And this is one of those keys to answer that question about uh, does God have multiple personalities? Um, And the answer is no, because God's goal in bringing judgment is always to bring people to redemption and forgiveness. That's the reason he punishes these people. His goal is that they come back. Look at, flip over in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. This is God describing the judgment that he's poured out or that he will pour out on nations. He says this, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man and without an inhabitant. And I said, listen to this, surely you will fear fear me. You will accept correction. Correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. He said, surely you will fear me. But then at the end of the verse, it says, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. 
And so God says, I have made all these things, all these judgments come about so that people will realize they need to turn to me, the maker of heaven and earth. I'm the one who they can trust, not the idols, not themselves, not their silver or their gold. Trust me. And yet, even with all these reminders, all these judgments, people still choose to walk away from me. God's desire is to bring redemption. And we see there's a transition in verse 8. I already read that. Um, he says, I did this, but now I'm going to bring pour out my jealousy and my anger. And then when we get to the last section here in a minute, you'll see the transition to restoration. But God's goal in judgment is redemptive. Redemptive. Here's, a, here's something that helps us understand this. I know we have a couple people in here who have restored old cars, right? Antique cars. Uh, who's done that in here? I know a few of you have. I know uh, um, Kevin Watterson is in the process always of restoring at least one truck. Uh, so this idea of when you have an old truck that's ruined or an old car that's ruined or old and it's rusted out, maybe the windows are broken, the seat's bad, that engine doesn't run anymore, you have to pull it all apart. You have to sand down the rust spots and sometimes cut them out and replace it with something else. It's a long and painful process. But the goal is to restore that car so that it looks just as good or maybe even better than it did the day it was on the showroom floor. In other words, it's hard to go through all those difficult things, but the goal in the end is to have a restored car. And so God says, when I bring about judgment, The goal is the same, is to bring about restoration. I want to restore people to what I created them to be. And that is to have a relationship with the true and living God. He's the one who can make sense of life. So this idea of passionate judgment, you know, it's total judgment. God is just to bring it. And yet we see that its goal is redemptive. What's our takeaway? When we read the Minor Prophets, when we read Zephaniah, it talks about this utter destruction on the face of the earth. What should we take away from that? I think overall, the big thing is when we see God raging against sin, when God bringing judgment against sin, how can you miss this? God hates sin. He hates sin. And why does he hate sin? Because, you know, we could stop the message there. And I think a lot of times people do stop the message there. They just say, God hates sin. Stop sinning. But we have to ask, why does God hate sin? Sin is those things that we do. You know, part of it is we don't like to talk about sin, right? Sin is anything we do against God's will. Uh, Sometimes it's willful and deliberate. Sometimes it's just what we feel like doing. But sin is something that destroys. It destroys creation. It destroys people. You read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, sin destroys people. It destroys relationships, families. Sin always destroys. And the problem is, all of us have sin. We have this virus, this sickness in us that's going to destroy us. And apart from Christ, it's hopeless. And so, the takeaway from this section and from all the minor prophets is, remember, God hates sin. He takes it very seriously. He rails against it so much And these prophets and tells us what he's going to do about it because he cannot coexist with sin. Sin has to be paid for. It has to be judged. It has to be taken away. So what do we do with that? Realizing that God hates sin. When you read the minor prophets, it's pretty obvious. What do you do with that? I think the answer is over and over again. He invites us. God invites us to turn from sin and turn to God.
We're going to look at what that looks like a little more. That's only possible to do it through Jesus Christ. It's only possible to turn away from sin and to turn to God through Jesus Christ. And so as we think about this, let's say you do know Jesus, you know God and you're following him. And you read these passages about how much God hates sin. And I would just say, I think these are a call to keep your eyes open to any sins you might be falling into. Um, What are those things that take you away from your relationship with God or that are destroying your relationships with others? You know, there are certain sins that we are blind to, right? Um, Sins these days that you hear a lot about in the news, right? The the past sins or current whatever of, of racism. You hear the, the sins of violence and destruction, things like that. Sins that some people nowadays are blind to. But also, I would just say there are sins even that we elevate. And there's a book that Jerry Bridges wrote. I don't know if any of you have read this. It's actually called Respectable Sins. In other words, there are some sins out there that we kind of say, oh, look, that guy, he's really shrewd in business. We kind of respect him. Uh, good for him. When in fact, maybe that person has been greedy, prideful, and dishonest all the way through. And uh, and so this idea of God saying, I hate all sin. If you know God, allow him to remove those sins from your life. Cooperate with him as he does that. So here's the message of the minor prophets, right? When we look at passionate judgment from God is that people are broken and they deserve this judgment. But that brings us to the second part of this book and the second part of this sermon is that God offers us passionate restoration. Passionate restoration. Is this a split personality? The answer is no. Because God consistently offers restoration to anyone and everyone who will call on him. And that's what Zephaniah tells us. Restoration is offered to all who call on him, to anyone who will trust in him. One commentator said this, judgment in the minor prophets and judgment in Zephaniah, judgment is not the final word. It is simply a means to bring the people of Judah and Jerusalem back to an uncorrupted devotion to Yahweh. And then another author said this, Hope always has the last word. Hope always has the last word. And I don't know about you this morning, but I am grateful that hope has the last word. Passionate restoration. What does this restoration look like here in the book of Zephaniah? We'll just look briefly at some of these verses. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. This is a major shift in gears. This is one of those verses where you would say, chapter 3, verse 8 sounds like terrible negative judgment. Very next verse It says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So I think the first thing we see with restoration is restored worship. If you think about the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were there, Every day it says they walked with God. They had a relationship with him. Uninterrupted worship of the living God who created them. Sin interrupted that. And God says, I want to restore that kind of worship. Think about, you know, it mentions just one of these things. It says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. Have you ever thought about that? That's the real reason why God gave you a mouth. (laughs) 
Yes, we need to use it for communication too. Uh, that's important. But the main, most important thing you can do with your mouth, with your words, is to praise God, worship Him, call upon the name of the Lord. And God says, from creation and the fall, mouths, speech has not been used that way. Uh, I can probably give you some examples in my own life from this week of where I used my speech in a way that was negative. Um, You might be able to think of some of those too. And God says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. A couple of things I want us to notice in that verse. First of all, you're going to see over the next three weeks in the last three or four books of the Minor Prophets, there's kind of an increasing focus on worship. As we move to the end of the Old Testament, it kind of leaves us on this note of worship the living God. So there's an increasing focus on worship. And God says, I'm going to bring about restoration so that one day all peoples will be worshiping me. And that's the other thing. It says the peoples. It doesn't just say the Israelites or the people in Jerusalem or the, the people who call themselves the Judeans. It says the peoples, all the peoples, all the nations. We mentioned earlier that Zephaniah looks back at Genesis a lot. In fact, if you flip back to Genesis 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, where God confused the languages of the peoples because they were arrogant. They were saying, we are as good as God. We don't need God. And God confused their languages because they were misusing their language. And and here in Zephaniah, we see him saying, I'm going to restore the languages to their original purpose. And that is to praise and worship the living God. Genesis 11 and 12 are actually really fascinating chapters, and we won't get deep into this, but Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel, where there's a breakdown of communication. And then you go to chapter 12, when we meet this person named Abram. And God says to Abram, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to have a relationship with you and your family. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed. So it's a really, really beautiful thing we see happening here in Zephaniah. Did you catch that connection? God promised Abraham after the Tower of Babel that I'm going to restore all peoples. And here in Zephaniah, he says, in that day, after all the judgment is over, I'm going to restore all the peoples. Just like I promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He says, I want you to call on my name. It says, all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? That means to trust him, to call out to him and say, God, I trust you. I trust you. I don't trust me. I don't trust my idols. I don't trust my parents. I don't trust my money. None of those things will save me for eternity. I call upon your name and your reputation as the righteous judge, the God who created heaven and earth. That's who we call out to. And it says, and they serve him. And so, again, as I look at this book of Zephaniah, again, it ties together Genesis and Revelation. Genesis and Revelation. Revelation talks of those days when, uh, in chapter 7, all peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow before the throne and worship the king. Doesn't that sound a lot like Zephaniah? And it also sounds like what God predicted in Genesis. And Zephaniah tells us that, Uh, the judgment of the Lord brings people to that point of repentance 
and calling on his name. So passionate restoration. First of all, we see the restored worship. Then we also see the restored remnant. Well, what is this talking about? What's a remnant? You know, if you hear that word remnant, um, you might think of leftovers, right? Uh, and so uh, if you were going to go home from church today and say, hey, what's for lunch? And you'd say, ah, leftovers. I don't know anybody in this room who would say, yes, that's my favorite thing. I want leftovers. Uh, in our minds, leftovers and remnants are kind of a negative thing, right? They're not as good as the real thing. Um, and yet, when God talks about the remnant in Scripture, it's not second class. It's not second rate. In fact, I would say it's one of the clearest pictures of what God wants us to understand his faithful people to be. And so when we see the word remnant in Scripture, what we're talking about is those, um, those in every age who are God's faithful followers. And so uh, this remnant, these people that come through the judgment and have survived it, and they still are faithful. They are still trusting in the name of the Lord their God. In every age, God tells us in Scripture, there is a remnant. In some ages, the remnant, God's faithful people, are in the minority. You would kind of think remnant sounds like a smaller group. There may have been some times in history where it's been a majority, but I think overall, usually God's faithful people are a minority of the population. And so God says, I'm going to preserve them so I can use them to bring about renewal and restoration in a larger group of people. And so God says, that's the job I have for my remnant, for my faithful followers. God says, I'm going to restore them. Look at verses 11 through 13. Who are these people? Just listen as I read these verses. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds which, with which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. In other words, pride is gone. There's no room for pride in this remnant. Verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a humble people and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Verse 12, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So seeking refuge in the name of the Lord, again, it's that picture of calling out to him and trusting him. So two times now we're told in this restoration, the people who survive are the ones who call on the name of the Lord, who find their refuge in him alone, not in the things that they've created. They find their refuge in him alone. It says they're humble and lowly. You know, if you're humble, that means you're not relying on yourself. You're not relying on yourself. This reminds me of Psalm chapter 34, verse 6. Uh, Anybody know that verse? Psalm 34, 6 says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. So we talk about poor and humble and lowly, it's important for us to realize that this is who we are. And you may have a problem saying that I'm not poor. And God says, then you're proud because we are all, every one of us, spiritually poor. And God wants us to say, this poor man cried and the Lord heard me because he will hear when you call on him in humility and say, God, I'm helpless on my own. So this morning, do you see yourself as poor apart from God? 
realizing that you can do nothing on your own. God says, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him from all his troubles. So he restores those who have faith in him. And then the last thing I want us to see this morning with this passionate restoration is that God says, I restore the blessings that I've promised to my people. I restore those to trust in me, to those who trust in me. And it's what, what do we mean when we say God restores these blessings? If we read through these verses, it's kind of a song at the end of the book of Zephaniah, verses 14 through 20. A song where God lists off all these blessings that he wants to restore to his people. God delights to bless his people, loves to pour out his blessings on them, on those who have faith in him. In fact, there's an interesting thing that Zephaniah does here in, in this last chapter. Remember back at the beginning of the book in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, I will sweep away everything. Verse 3, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens. I will cut off mankind. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. And I will cut off from this place. But then you get to chapter 3. Listen to what God says he will do in these verses. We've already seen verse 9. I will change the speech of the peoples. I will remove from your midst the haughty ones. Verse 12, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. I will preserve a remnant. And then listen now as I read verses 14 through 20 about all the things that God says he will do. It's like a reversal of the judgment. He's saying, for those who have faith in me, I will pour out my blessing and I will restore them. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not the work of your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. In the last verse of the book, at that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What a beautiful promise that God has of restoring the blessings to his people. Here's a list for you of those things that I kind of just read through. So as you look at this list, God says, I'm going to bless you with my presence. I'm going to bless you with courage. You need not fear any longer. The opposite of fear is courage. I'm going to bless you with delight, my delight in you. Verse 17, if you've heard any verse from Zephaniah, that's probably the one you've heard. Um, because uh, it's a powerful verse. God says, I'm going to bless you with delight. I delight in you. I rejoice over you with gladness. Quietness. God says, I give you a quiet place. Think about the times that those people lived in. They could see the invader looming on the horizon. They knew destruction was coming. And God says, I'm going to bless you with quietness. We live in some chaotic times. How good does quiet sound? 
God says, be still and know that I am God. Quietness, joy. At the end of verse 17, he will rejoice over you with loud singing. Uh, There's somebody who wrote about this and said, do you realize that we serve a God who sings? Who sings about us? How amazing is that? That's one of the reasons we worship in song. We're made in the image of God and we serve a God who sings. And we are imitating him when we cry out and worship in song. Deliverance, verse 19, that's that word salvation. You know the name Jesus actually means salvation. Yeshua is the same word that's used there in this word, in this verse. Uh, Honor and restoration. Restoration really sums it all up. God says, I want to pour out my blessings on you. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so as you look at that list, I would just say, where have you seen God's presence? Where have you seen him provide courage? Or where do you need to see his presence? Where do you need to see his joy? Where do you need to see his deliverance? Ask him those questions. That brings us back to the question we started with. Does God have a multiple personality disorder? Does he have a split personality Another way of asking that is, can we trust him? And the answer is, yes, we can trust him. And no, he does not have a multiple personality disorder. Because here's the deal. Our God is mighty to save. Chapter 3, verse 17. He consistently offers restoration to all who call on him. In fact, if we want to talk about who has the disorder, this morning we've already seen it over and over again in the prophets. Humans have the disorder. Because we're the ones running back and forth and splitting our allegiance. Our disorder is sin. We have a sin problem. But we thank God, as Zephaniah shows us, he gives us a salvation solution. The cross demonstrates this more powerfully than any other place. Right? Think about the disciples on the day when Jesus was crucified. I'm sure they were thinking, God, do you have a split personality? You just allowed this person who we thought was the Messiah to be killed. And how can that be? Why would you allow this to happen? Why would you allow him to experience judgment? And then three days later, when he was raised from the grave, they understood. He took the judgment that we deserved. He is mighty to save. Do you trust him? Do you call on his name? He is our only hope in life and in death. I want to read some verses just to close from Titus chapter 3 that I think captures what we're talking here. So Titus 3 verse 3 says, We ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient, led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that not being justified, that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. You can trust him. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Zephaniah and what he reveals to us about you 
your judgment and your restoration. God, I pray for everyone in this room that if they haven't already done it, they would turn to you and trust you for the redemption of their sins. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand for a benediction? I'm going to say, uh, read some verses from, uh, from Psalms over you that I think also go along with the message of this book. So Psalms say this, uh, may God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known upon the earth, your saving power among all the nations. Amen. Go and make disciples.